Welcome to the Forerunner Church Podcast, where we highlight key messages and themes related to the body of Christ, inviting you to connect with our spiritual family as we grow in passion for Jesus and compassion for people. For more information, visit forerunnerchurch.com. Um, go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to look at Zechariah 3, really, but I want to start with 1 Timothy 1. And uh, there's no notes available today except for your own pen and paper. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for your presence. Lord, we ask you that you would increase, Father, your presence by your spirit. Father, to take uh, the precious things, Lord, that belong to your son. And in Christ are all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. Lord, we ask you that you'd release nuggets of understanding by the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our minds. Lord, that you'd illumine our understanding. Father, we ask you for the entrance of your word, Lord, to bring light, Lord, the very penetration of your word in our minds, to reveal, Father, to make known the truth of who you are in your holy heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we uh, jump into First Timothy, I just want to um, highlight um, Mike Bickle. He gave a message this Friday uh, to our staff, and... Uh, talking about the prophetic history where he highlighted uh, four specific Saturdays uh, where the Lord uh, spoke during the solemn assembly in 1983. There were these four Saturdays. It was May 7th, May 14th, May uh, 21st, and May 28th. The Lord um, uh, spoke in some very dramatic and very specific ways. It just ends up that these that these uh, that these four days, and basically what happened was the uh, the first uh, uh, May seventh is when the Lord uh, uh, confirmed really Daniel nine and end of fast by the, the the release of the comet, and on May fourteenth the Lord spoke about His zeal to um, reveal and give grace to discover His beauty. Psalm twenty seven four. On May 21st, um, he spoke about uh, uh, the, the manifestation of power and healing um, in, a, in, a, in a significant way that he uh, wants to release uh, to the people of God. And then on May 28th, he talked about uh, the need for perseverance um, in the gap as we are believing the Lord for things not only in the church and this nation, as we're believing things of, uh, from the Lord pertaining to the nation of Israel. And so when he highlighted these, uh, these, message, uh, these four Saturdays last Friday, and I guess I want to encourage us to, to say that, you know, the prophetic history, they're not his story, they're not the story of the IFKC leadership team, but really they are our story and they're the story for our children and for our children's children. The Lord even made that very clear that this was even for the generations to come. And so we really want to engage with them. I try to take about it once a year myself just to kind of, listen just to different aspects of the prophetic history and just find my own heart 
strengthened and encouraged because again, it's, it's, it's your story. It's, it's about your life and the life of your children and your grandchildren. And, uh, but not only that, it's, it's about Kansas City. It's about the region, about what the Lord wants to do. And so I encourage you to um, check it out. It's on YouTube, message from last uh, Friday. But then also in a, in, I want to encourage you just to listen to the prophetic history. There are several um, uh, sessions of that on, on mybooker.org and other places on the internet as well. Okay, First um, Timothy chapter 1, First Timothy chapter 1, I just want to uh, make a point here about um, our response to the gospel, our response uh, to the grace of God, and uh, in just a few moments we're going to jump into Zechariah chapter 3, um, because this issue of responding to the gospel of grace um, is really the way that we're to respond to God's heart and God's purposes for the nation of Israel. In 1 Timothy, Paul, of course, writing to um, his spiritual son Timothy, and starting at verse 12, he says, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. And so he's talking about, the first thing he says, he says, look, this, this apostolic calling that I'm walking in came by divine enablement. This, this came by the grace of God. And I'm, and I'm grateful to the Lord that he um, has enabled me, he has appointed me, he has visited me by his grace uh, to partner with him in this way, to serve him and to serve his people in this way. And Paul continues, although, he puts it in contrast. He goes, it's, he says, uh, this, I'm walking in this assignment that is precious and holy to the Lord, even though, or although formally, now talking about his life before he knew the Lord, he said, although formally I was a blasphemer, a persecutor of the people of God. He was an insolent man or a man who behaved violently in, a, in, a, in an arrogant way. And so he's describing who he was uh, before he knew the Lord. He says, this is who I was. He says, I was arrogant. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. He goes, and yet God had mercy on me. God um, uh, graced me. God enabled me, putting me into this assignment as an apostle. He says, I did this ignorantly, and in unbelief, verse 14, I love this phrase. Excuse me, he says, and I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly, but in unbelief. And in verse, 16, uh, verse 14, he says, and I love this, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. I just love that phrase. He doesn't just, he could have just said, and the grace of the Lord was abundant. That's pretty intense. He goes, no, it wasn't just abundant. He says, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. And beloved, that is my story. That is your story. It may not be these three categories, but it's something in terms of who we were before we met Christ. And we obtained mercy. And, um, and when we obtained mercy, God's grace was exceedingly abundant when he visited us in the day when we gave our lives to him and his, and has continued to be exceedingly abundant as we are seeking to walk with the Lord. 
And so this grace, Paul says, was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul continues in verse 15. He says, he goes, this is a faithful saying. In other words, in other words, you can count on this. This statement is very, very true. He's about to say something about himself. He said, this is a faithful saying. He says, and it's worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen? He came into the world to save sinners. And he says, of who I am the chief, Paul says. However, in other words, he goes, I was the worst of them. That's who I was, Paul says. I was the worst of them. He goes, but I obtained mercy. He said, God was exceedingly abundant in his grace. I, I, I could say that phrase almost all day. <laughs> it was, I was exceedingly abundant, his grace was. I want to say this again. When we met Jesus, however we met him and whenever we met him, he was exceedingly abundant in his grace. And he has continued to be exceedingly abundant in that grace uh, moving forward all of our days. His acceptance of us, not only that, but his empowerment to us to live obedient lives. And so Paul says that I'm the chief of sinners, verse 16. However, he says, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering. He goes, my life, he says, is a testimony of the long suffering of God. My life is a testimony of the patience of God. Your life is a testimony of the patience of God. And Paul continues to say, he says, look, that he may show all long suffering, and here it is, as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. In other words, again, my life is a pattern. The way the Lord has interacted with me, Paul says, is a pattern, is a witness. But beloved, that is true for, for all of us, that our lives are a pattern and a witness of the long suffering of God uh, for those who are going to come in and believe unto everlasting life in the days ahead. And so Paul in verse 17, he, he explodes in worship. He says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, to him be glory forever and ever, amen. I mean, Paul is just overflowing with a heart of gratitude and worship. He's just like, wow, he goes, Lord, he goes, this is really who you are. This is who you've been to me, and this is who you want to be to others. And so Paul continues in verse 18. He, he, he's, he's still talking to Timothy. He says, Timothy, I, I charge, this charge I commit to you. And this charge that he's giving to Timothy uh, comes in the context of something. The context in which it comes is a Paul uh, uh, magnifying again the grace of God in his life. He says, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made, to you, uh, made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered, some have suffered uh, shipwrecked. In other words, he says, he says, Timothy, this grace that the Lord has given me, that grace really 
um, was given to you as well, and it came to you by way of the prophetic ministry. He goes, and I, I, he said, I want you to lay hold of these prophecies. I want you to wage war um, uh, uh, with these prophecies because, again, it's the grace of God given to you that you may have a strong faith, that you may have a good conscience. And he says, and there's some who stopped doing this, and as a result, he goes, they shipwrecked their faith. And then he says, and he, and he calls them my name. He says, of whom are Hermanius uh, and Alexander, um, who I delivered uh, to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so here are these two men that somehow undoubtedly were a part of the faith and somehow, some way, they shipwrecked their faith. And Paul, and, and he said, and Paul says, because they're blasphemers. In other words, these men are behaving in the very same way that Paul was behaving before he got saved. And he's saying, look, the grace of God came to me and the grace of God can come to them as well, but they are now under divine discipline and the purpose for this discipline is that they would encounter the grace of God and that they would return to the Lord and continue and obtain and walk in that exceedingly abundant grace. Here's the point I want to make. Verse two, I mean, chapter two, verse one. He says, therefore, he says, in light of this, Timothy, he goes, because of this, he goes, I exhort, I exhort you, Timothy, first of all, that you would make supplications, prayers, and intercession and giving thanks for all men. He goes, because we've been visited by the grace of God, because we obtained mercy, again, this exceeding abundant grace, he goes, the, the, the response is that we're to pray for all men, that they would encounter that grace as well. But he goes on to say, then verse two, he says, for kings and for all who are in authority. Now, the reason why he, he, uh, he, he um, whatchamacallit, he, he has this parentheses about kings and all those who are in authority is because this verse often gets made about kings and authority. It is not. This verse is a prayer for all men, but he highlights uh, kings and, and, and these, these political leaders who are in authority because our natural tendency is to not pray for them. Our natural tendency is to not pray for them. Our natural tendency is to almost kind of like pray to them in some ways uh, instead of praying for them. And Paul makes it very clear. He says, verse four and five, he says, because, not so much because of the change in the law, so that's important. He says, because God desires even their salvation. And he's talking specifically in that context about Nero, who was Again, like Paul, he was in a different way, but he was a blasphemer. He was, a, he was an insolent man. He was a violent man. He, he, was the, he was the state sponsor of the persecution of the body of Christ at that particular time. And Paul says, I have discovered the exceeding abundant grace of God in my life, and I believe in the exceeding and abundant grace of God for all men, including for those who are in authority. Why am I bring this up? Because the, the subject of Israel, of praying for Israel, has to do with us responding to the Lord based upon the grace that has been extended to us. We're not praying for Israel because it is the political thing to do. We're responding to Israel to do because we've been visited by the grace of God. And this becomes very important because in the Israel discussion, it can easily be perceived as Israel's being prayed for 
um, uh, by, uh, by, by the church because somehow she's innocent or quote unquote the good guys. And the reason I brought this up because we do the same thing in the political realm. The way, I don't know about you, so I'm, you know, I'm just gonna talk about myself and my own experience. I've run into this many, many times. Because over the years, you know, regardless of who's in office, I'm asking people to, you know, to pray for this person or whatnot. And invariably, and this happens more times than once, it's happened actually quite a lot, the response is, well, you know, I'm not gonna pray for them because of da 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 And in it, what they're doing, they're actually are betraying the fact that number one, they've, been for, they've forgotten that they were visited by grace. And number two, that they have bought into the subtle lie that we only pray for, quote, unquote, the good guys. Forgetting that once we were not the good guys or ourselves, that we were by nature children of wrath and enemies of the gospel and enemies of God. And like Paul, who is a pattern and a witness, God visited us with exceedingly and abundant grace. And so the subject of praying for Israel is the exact same thing. It is the exact same subject. Zechariah chapter 3, turn to everything, please. Zechariah chapter 3. I want to talk this morning about a prophetic perspective. About what I mean by prophetic, meaning that the, the, uh, Zechariah had this prophetic encounter in Zechariah chapter 3. A prophetic perspective on how to bless Israel. The Lord tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he tells him that, he says, I will bless those who bless you. He, goes, and he says, I will make your great name because I will bless those who bless you. I will, and you will be a blessing uh, to the, all the families of the earth. So what does it mean to, uh, to bless Israel? Well, the, uh, to bless Israel, uh, first and foremost, starts with us agreeing with God and his leadership in electing Abraham. We bless Israel by not even by embracing Israel, we, we bless Israel by accepting God's divine choice that he chose Abraham. Now, this principle of God blessing those um, who bless Abraham um, did not get suspended with the new covenant. There's this idea that because of the new covenant, the birth of the church, that uh, that, that is no longer true as it, relates to the, uh, as it relates to the Jewish people. In fact, it is a principle that is true throughout history, and it really, really will come into some real pract intensely practical implications uh, during the Great Tribulation when Israel will just will come under, under great, great pressure. Now, though this principle did not cease with the birth of the church, um, it does include the church because, the, because Abraham's seed is threefold in the New Testament very clearly. It is, it's, it's Christ Jesus is the seed. Uh, the Jewish people in the natural, they are the seed of Abraham. And then the church, uh, uh, they are the seed of Abraham as well in that they were grafted into that, uh, into the faith of, uh, of Abraham. It's a, very, it's a very serious principle that I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. Again, this is true for the church as well. Uh, from, the, from the aspect of the church, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, here's what Paul says to the church of Thessalonica. He said, it is a righteous thing for God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. And that really ought to put the fear of God in our hearts 
um, um, in particular in the days ahead, for those who are, would seek to trouble the church, he says, if they don't turn, God will trouble them with tribulation. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Now, David um, declared a, this famous verse in Psalm 122, verse 6. He said, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He says, may they prosper who love you. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. In other words, pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. Another way to say it is pray for the, for the full release of everything that God promised the Jewish people. Pray for the release, for the full release of everything that God promised the, the Jewish people. In other words, bless them. And he says, and if you bless them, he goes, you will prosper. Now, to give a little bit perspective to the word prosper, lest we get a little too excited, is that he doesn't say pray for Israel and you will all become billionaires. That's not what he means by prosper. Okay, that's not what he means. The idea of prospering is this. Pray, bless Israel, and, goes, and you will be successful or you will be fruitful in the assignment that the Lord has given you. It's about fruitfulness. And all of us have different scopes and different areas of, of responsibility and assignment trusted, entrusted to us by the Lord. And the Lord says, if you are helpful to my people, he goes, I will be helpful to you. That you will be fruitful in whatever sphere it is that you are, that you are a part of. And so the idea of blessings and cursings, here's what, it, it includes three things. First of all, it has to do with the issue of intentions, Number one, and number two, it is words spoken. And number three, it is actions taken. It is the, in other words, it are intentions that inform our words and they inform the actions that we are taking. So when we're talking about blessings, blessings are words and actions that are informed by the intention to be helpful. Say this again. Blessings are words and actions that are informed by the intention to be helpful. Curses are words and actions that are informed by the intention to be harmful or to resist or to not cooperate with. Again, blessings... Um, are rooted in the desire to be helpful and curses are rooted in the desire to not be helpful. Now, the reason why um, I'm, I'm, make, I'm bringing this definition to the table is because notice that the intention is to be helpful. That's the, that's the important piece because we are living in a time right now where loyalty equals agreement, or agreement equals loyalty. Therefore, I cannot bring critique about a particular thing. If I bring critique about a particular thing, then now I'm supposed to, I'm labeled as against that thing. And so blessing Israel doesn't mean that we are blindly just accepting anything and everything that Israel does. It's not about that. Say this again, blessing Israel doesn't mean that now we're accepting anything and everything that we did. That's why I started with the first Timothy passage. 
we're not praying for Israel because most people in this room are right-wing conservatives. This has got nothing to do with politics. It has, it's got nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with being Americans. Well, you know, Americans, you know, is, is an ally. You know, you know, our biggest ally in the Middle East for democracy is Israel. It's got zero to do with that. It has everything to do with the fact that we've, that we've been visited by the grace of God. And we're responding to that grace and we are asking the Lord and we are laboring with the Lord for the release of that grace that he promised them through the prophets. It's about the grace of God. It's about the, having been visited by the gospel. That's what it's about. Again, as I mentioned earlier, we're living in a time where um, uh, again, loyalty equals agreement. You know, this happened about to get run out of town, we're about to say, but yeah, I'm just getting too old, so I don't, you know, and I don't run that fast, so that's good news for you, you can catch me. All right, anyway, uh, you know, it's like, now, this is how this loyalty equals agreement thing works out. I saw it during the pandemic. You know, it's kind of like, if you are a left-leaning liberal you got to wear a mask because if you don't wear a mask, you'll be labeled as someone that doesn't care about human beings. If you are a right-wing conservative, you better not wear that mask because you are borderline bending your knees to the Antichrist. <laughs> and so, so you got, so here's what happens. So now you got a bunch of right-wing conservative people going, actually, I'd like to wear a mask, but my gosh, I don't want to wear a mask and have a three-hour conversation with my friend trying to convince me with podcasts and links and articles about why this is the Antichrist. It's like, ah! And then the left-wing guy goes, well, I kind of don't want to wear a mask. And they don't want to deal with their friends telling them how they don't care about humanity and they lack compassion and where's your love, brother? Goes, ah, I don't want to deal with any of this stuff. And so we create these sections, and, and, uh, and, so, and so, but that, here's the deal, but that mindset has crept into the church, and it is actually jeopardizing our prophetic voice. But the Lord is helping us. And so when we're talking about Israel, we're not talking now about, now you have to embrace everything. It's not about the politics. It really is not. It's about a covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he, he made a promise. I love what it says, what Paul says in Romans 11. He says that they're enemies of the gospel for your sake. He said, but for the sake of the fathers, they are beloved. He says, on account of his friend Abraham, because he made a commitment to, uh, he made a commitment to him. He made a commitment to Isaac. He made a commitment to Jacob. He, says it because it, he said it's on that account that they are beloved of God. So the evil one is postured to um, day and night to oppose and to accuse Jerusalem. That's what we see in Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is standing there and presumably on his right and on his left, the Lord is standing on his left and on the right is the evil one. And he says that he's there to oppose him. And we know from Jeremiah, from Zechariah that, the, um, uh, uh, that Joshua We'll look at it that just a moment, is representative of Jerusalem. Jesus in this hour is calling the church uh, to come before the Lord. And here it is. And through the word of God, come into alignment with his heart. We don't want to come in alignment with his heart through politics. We want to come in alignment to his heart through the word. 
and through the understanding of the gospel, and that we've been visited by the grace of God, the exceedingly abundant grace of God. So as we come before, we come into alignment with his heart and his vision for Israel and for the Jewish people. And when we pray and prophesy, we now do this in accordance to, uh, uh, to his counsel, the very counsel of God. That's how we pray and preach and prophesy is according to the counsel of God found in the word of God. If we don't do that, we end up doing what Paul says. We end up boasting against the branch. Boasting against the branch. What does he mean by the phrase boasting against the branch? It means that we end up bringing self-righteous indictments against Israel and the Jewish people. What are these self-righteous indictments against Israel and the Jewish people? They are indictments where we pretend as though we ourselves once were not delivered by grace. That we ourselves have not been delivered by grace. That's what Paul means by boasting against the branches. That's why this is not a political response. It is a gospel response. It's us, again, we were encountered by the exceedingly abundant of God's grace. So the primary purpose, Zechariah chapter 3, the primary purpose of, uh, of the book of uh, Zechariah is the future of Jerusalem, the purpose of Jerusalem. Prophet Zechariah in the first Six chapters of Zechariah, he has, the poor guy, I guess, he has eight visions in one night. Eight visions in one night. Probably goes to sleep, wakes up, boom, has a vision. Writes it down, tries to shake it up, goes, falls back to sleep, wakes up, boom, gets hit with another one. Eight visions in a row in one night. And they're all focused on God's Zeal, God's commitment, how God thinks and feels about Jerusalem and his plan to bring that city into the fullness of their destiny. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 2, the Lord says this. He says, I'm zealous for Zion or for Jerusalem because I'm filled with deep, longings and yearnings, that city is personal to him. He has deep emotions, deep concern, deep love, deep affection about that city. It's a city that will, that will last forever on the earth. It says in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 4, he says, he also built altars in the house of the Lord of which the, of which the Lord has said, in Jerusalem, my name, uh, I will put my name there forever. In Jerusalem shall be my name forever. In other words, the unveiling of who I am, the knowledge of who I am, the revelation of my power, the revelation of my purpose, the revelation of my character will be in that city forever. And from there, it will permeate the, uh, the nations of the earth. Jerusalem is a city chosen by God where the revelation of God's name will be forever. According to, Zach, according to the prophet Isaiah, from there, Jesus will instruct the nations concerning the glory of his father. 
Jerusalem will be an instructional center. According to Isaiah chapter 2, it will be a bridal city. According to Isaiah 11, it will be a global justice center. It will be a global worship center, according to Isaiah 25. According to uh, Isaiah 27, it will be a restoration center, meaning it will be a place from where the kings of the earth will gain insight on how to bring restoration to their nations and to their cities. We We have to remember that when Jesus comes back, this may be a new idea to, uh, to some of you, but when Jesus comes back to the earth, he comes back to a war zone. He comes back to the earth that is ravished by war, pestilence, disease, earthquakes, natural disasters. He's coming back to the planet in that way. He's coming back to a planet that is, I mean, completely and utterly filled with cynicism when it comes to an uh, 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 when it comes to political leaders. I mean, imagine this. I mean, you know, different ones of us, you know, d- depending on how you lean, that's not my point, but you, there, there, is a, there is a growing, uh, like, I mean, we've, we've already been distrustful of government, but there is like an increased distrust of government today. Well, this distrust of government will reach eschatological heights and it will be global after Jesus comes back and has defeated the Antichrist the most evil leader in the earth, it could because the, the, the three and a half years, so to speak, of his regime left the earth in complete and utter destruction. And so there's confusion in the earth, there's cynicism, there's trauma, there's loss, there's grief, and Jesus comes back and he sets up Jerusalem as a restoration center. I think of Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus is preaching to, uh, to the Jewish people. I love this. He's, he talks about the queen of Sheba. He, he kind of said, hey, you know, 1 Kings chapter 10, when the queen of Sheba came to Solomon. Y'all remember that? He goes, yeah. Because what happens in 1 Kings chapter 10, the queen of Sheba, she visits uh, Solomon, and it says that when he showed her, <laughs> this is amazing, when he showed her, all of this stuff, I mean, he showed them the books, the administration, the leadership, the, 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 the buildings, the, organist, the org charts. I mean, he showed them all of this stuff. It says that when she saw all this stuff, it says her spirit left her. In other words, she was so overwhelmed, she passed out. I mean, just completely, utterly blown away by Solomon's wisdom. It says in 1 Kings chapter 4 that God gave... Solomon wisdom, we all know that, but we often don't pay attention, you know, the, what kind of wisdom he gave uh, uh, to Solomon. We used to focus on the Proverbs, which is good, and we used to focus on the splitting of the baby, which is kind of weird. But 1 Kings tells us that he gave him wisdom about trees, birds, fish, animals, plants, I mean, he gave him all of this insight, and so the kings of the earth would come to Solomon and say, hey, I'm kind of struggling with the forest over here. Do you, you have any thoughts? And he would get them inside in terms of how to deal with the issue in their time. There's my point. Jesus talks about Queen of Sheba's visits to, uh, uh, to Solomon, and then he makes this awesome statement. He goes, one 
greater than Solomon is standing here. He goes, do you know who I am? He goes, do you know what it will be like when I come back, when I set up Jerusalem as a restoration center, when the earth has been ravished by the Antichrist and his minions? I mean, the earth completely ravished, the people filled with trauma, the people filled with despair, the people filled with distrust. He goes, the kings of the earth, they will come to Jerusalem, and I, the one who is greater than Solomon, will get the wisdom and insight. I will give them the healing to the nations, they will go back to their countries and it will bring restoration to, uh, to their areas. So, so this, so, so anyway, so Isaiah 27 is a restoration center. Isaiah, Psalm 48, it is the, the city of the great king. It is a city that is filled with great joy. I was thinking uh, this morning how and, uh, I grew up in a very small country called Suriname in South America. And um, uh, I remember, it's a 79-80 over there. I'm, I'm second grade, I'm on the playgrounds. Most of you don't know what Suriname is, that's okay, you, you don't know in the millennium. And, uh, and so I'm kind of walking around. I remember, you know, you know, doing what kids do. I don't know, maybe a sand castle, maybe punching somebody in the face, I don't know. We're doing something. And, uh, this kid, one of my classmates, you know, walks up to me out of nowhere, and he goes, who do you want to be president of the United States? And uh, because it was Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter were, were running for, for office. And I, I, I go, what are you talking about? He goes, no, no, he goes, who do you want to be president, Carter or Reagan? I'm thinking, I don't know nothing. I... I said Reagan, the only thing I said Reagan is his name sounded nicer. And so, now I remember this so vividly. I said, I said Reagan, and he goes, good. He goes, because Jimmy Carter is a peanut farmer. <laughs> and so, you, so that was the depth of his political analysis. But, uh, but, but here's the point. What, what were two second graders talking about American politics? That is the presence of America in the earth at that time. That's what's gonna to happen to Jerusalem. It will be so present in the earth that it will be the conversation of the peoples of the earth and it will bring them joy. That's what he means by it will be the joy of the whole earth. So as the end of the age draws near, Jerusalem will continue to come more and more into the forefront of the conversations of the church. It's God's eternal plan for the world centers around this city. One of the reasons is because Israel is part of God's object lesson for the nations. Jerusalem is a witness of God's leadership for the nations. Part of how God is going to, going to display who he is and his glory to the nations is by what he does or doesn't do in either redemption and in judgment. So the nations will understand Jesus' character by how he relates to that city. In other words, it's this way. How God is to them 
God is to you. Because it's the same God. There is no shadows in turning with him. There's no deviation. There, there is no variation. This is why the subject is so important because as we lock into understanding how he relates with Jerusalem, it will magnify our understanding about who he is and what it is that he's like. And we're like, man, if this is what you're like towards them, wow. He goes, that's how you are towards me. Which is, again, why this cannot be political. I get people come to me and they say, hey, so what about Israel, this and that and the other? And again, they are assuming that the prayer is that I'm in favor of Israel because of some political stance. I'm like, it's got nothing to do with anything. He goes, we are for Israel because the God who we love is for Israel. And he chose Israel. It has everything to do with him and our interactions with him. And, and so they go, but what about all these different things? And I'm like, well, you know, my guess is some of it is propaganda. Some of it might be true. I'm like, it doesn't change the story. It doesn't change the fact that, that, that God's engagement with that city and that people has everything to do with the grace of God. So here's what happens in Zechariah chapter 3. And then we're just going to wrap it up in just a few moments. Joshua is standing there, the angel of the Lord. Jesus, more than likely the, uh, before he became a man, is standing right there, the son of God, and, and, uh, and the, the accuser standing right there. And he's standing there for the purpose of opposing Jerusalem. One of the reasons why he's seeking to oppose Jerusalem is because Jerusalem is not in a good condition. In fact, it says that, uh, that Joshua, his garments were dirty. He, he has these filthy garments. And uh, for those of you interested, you can look it up. It's actually quite graphic. It wasn't just a little bit of dirt and some mud. It was actually a quite graphic picture in terms of the condition of his priestly garment. And the enemy is standing there, and what he's doing, he's seeking to bring charges as to why Jerusalem is disqualified from the call of God. Zechariah chapter 3 addresses the issue of God's election of Jerusalem and her certain future. However, he also highlights her present condition. He doesn't overlook it. Zechariah sees that Joshua's garments are soiled um, um, with, uh, all, uh, with all kinds of stuff. So Zechariah 3, what it does, it provides for us a model of how we bless Jerusalem and Israel and the Jewish people, how we bless them in the midst of her present condition. That's what's happening in Zechariah chapter 3, is how to stand and how to bless. Remember, blessing is the intent to be helpful that informs our words and it informs our actions. Zechariah 3 is a model of how we can bless Israel while she is in her present condition. What's her present condition? Is her garments are dirty. Her priesthood is profoundly uh, compromised. And she is significantly, according to Romans 11, 28, is significantly against the gospel. In fact, Paul calls them enemies of the gospel. And yet we're called, we get insight here how to bless Israel, how to pray for Israel, how to 
prophesy and preach uh, the gospel to, uh, to the Jewish people and then how to provide. I love that verse that, that uh, Isaac highlighted earlier, that Romans 15, uh, 26, is that, is that it's our duty to, uh, to provide material things uh, for, those who are, for those who are suffering. Here are four things. Here are four ways of how we can stand with Israel. Number one, Romans 10.1, we pray. Romans 10.1, we pray. Romans 10.5, we, uh, we, we find opportunities and build relationships uh, to, to, uh, to present the gospel of Yeshua. Number three, we provide. Romans 15.26, it is our duty to provide. And fourthly, we peacemake. In uh, 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 Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul talks about the mystery of, of Jew and Gentile becoming one. In other words, in a very, very simple way, as we actively take a stance against anti-Semitism, we are peacemakers when it, comes to that, when it comes to that issue. So we pray, we preach, we provide, and we protect. How's that for alliteration? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I worked really hard on those four Ps. <laughs> so we pray, preach, provide, and protect. So Zechariah, here's what happens. He sees the accuser. Just bear with me for a moment. He sees the accuser, and the accuser, what he seeks to do, he's seeking to make a case. Why Jerusalem is disqualified? And what we see here is that the election of Israel, again, has nothing to do with her ability. It has everything to do with the grace and the kindness of God. The accuser, he manifests himself in many ways. But the primary way in which he manifests, he manifests by putting focus, by directing our focus on her failure and leading the nations to conclude that he is done with her because of her failure. Say this again. The primary way in which the enemy manifests, the, the, the accuser opposes Israel, is by magnifying her failure and then seeking to convince the nations that he's done with Jerusalem as it pertains to her calling. In other words, that God is done with his divine election and purpose. And I wanted to say, God is not done with Jerusalem. He's not done with his election and his purpose for that city. The orientation of this world, of the world, is a works-based election. In other words, earning the divine appointment. We talk about God's divine appointment on, on Jerusalem. The immediate thing that we tend to do is begin looking for reasons why that should be the case or should not be the case. And the Lord goes, you're missing the point. He goes, you did not come into the kingdom that way. We did not come into the kingdom that way. Some of us think that God actually got a good deal when he brought us in. It's like, man, I need, I need, I need some real talent. He goes, man, okay, you, you... Uh, I got too much of this, so we'll skip you. This video. No, that's not how this thing went at all. Paul says he chose the foolish things of this world, not the qualified. This thing, beloved, this thing is about the grace of God. 
And when we think about the election and the first thing we do is looking for qualifications, we have actually exposed ourselves in terms of either how little we understand the gospel or that, we've been, or that we have forgotten that we've been visited by exceeding abundant grace. And that's how the enemy uh, stands in front of Joshua. He's coming, he's, he's saying, look, he says, they're not qualified. He goes, look at all these things that they're doing. He goes, they have completely and utterly dis, uh, 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 disqualified themselves. And here's what happens. And it says, the Lord, he says, it says that he rebukes the evil one. He rebukes him. He says, I do not agree with your assessment. I don't, I don't agree with you at all. He goes, No. He goes, he, he looks at the evil and he goes, no. He goes, I don't agree with you. He goes, no. He goes, you are the one that's disqualified. Because that is part of the issue of the evil one. Part of the issue of the evil one is that according to Isaiah 14, here's the issue. The issue is that He utterly despises the fact that he was not elected. And he has a charge against God. And he's filling the earth with that same charge. And the Lord rebukes him. He goes, no. He goes, you're the one that's not qualified. He goes, there is no truth in you. You're a liar. He goes, there's no life in you. You're a murderer. He goes, there's no generosity in you. You're a thief. The Lord, he said, and then Zechariah goes again. He goes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So the first thing is the Lord rebukes you. And then it's like, no, it's not just any, just the Lord. It's no, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. He is the one that rebukes you. And the reason why it says the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem is because that is the issue. That is the issue. The enemy's accusation is deeply rooted in the idea of a continual self-justification of why he deserves the one to be chosen, and that is the deep-seated offense in the hearts of the nations of the earth. It's not the choice, it's that we were not the ones chosen. And the Lord looks at him and says, is this one not a brand plucked by the fire? In other words, you don't think that I'm aware of who I picked? You don't think that I'm aware of her condition? But this is a brand plucked by the fire and it's plucked by the fire because it's a brand that I put in the fire to refine it and to purify it through my divine discipline. Because I know what I picked. Because I'm not unaware of their stuff. I'm not aware of your stuff. It's like, uh huh. Hmm. Because yes. Because I prepared a fire for her. I will purify it. I will prepare her. Because you don't think I see her condition? You don't think that I have plans to, to, to raise her up and to be the one who qualifies her? We'll end it with this, that the words didn't come up. And then he, Lord, the Lord continues. After he's, 
after he rebukes the evil one, he looks, I love this, he looks at the angels. He goes, take away the filthy garments. Beloved, that's what happened with you and me the day we're born again. He goes, take away the filthy garments. He goes, see, I have removed her iniquity. This hasn't happened yet at that time, but I imagine the Lord saying, look, I, I will remove her iniquity. I've removed it. He goes, in fact, I will come and I will make provision for that removal through my death on the cross in the same way that I did for you. He goes, I will manifest my leadership because I will do things in the earth. I will create an optimum environment of this fire of discipline that will purify her. And I just, in the nick of time, I will pluck her from the fire. Is this one not a brand plucked by the fire? Beloved, you and I are like a brand plucked from the fire. And when it was this, Zechariah is watching this vision. He's watching the Lord rebuking the evil one. And then he charges the angels, take away the iniquity. Zechariah, that brother, is so jazzed by this vision, he butts into the conversation. He goes, yeah, while you're at it, put a turban on her head too. <laughs> and here's the crazy thing. When he says that, guess what? The angels do it. <laughs> and that's how we bless Israel. Is we watch Jesus' narrative as he is speaking over that city and then we jump in on the conversations and the angels will move along with it. A hundred million intercessors are where the singers are going. A hundred million intercessors, and this is what they will say, put a turban on him. Put a turban on him. Put a turban on him. As the Lord puts on that helmet of salvation, that revelation of truth, as he rides the high, the, like the, you know, the high priest is a term where he writes the name of God upon their foreheads. The good news is this. If he's that way to, towards them, he's that way towards us. Let's all stand. Some of you, let's just close your eyes. Let's just take a moment to talk to the Lord. Some of you are going, you know what? There's just some stuff about my life. Some of it was years ago. And you know the Lord has forgiven you. But at the same time, you have concluded that you're disqualified from the fullness of the call of God he put on you. Beloved, Israel in her condition, and to talk about her condition according to the word is another subject for another day. But when we see her condition according to the word, Israel and the Jewish people by the grace of God through the gospel will be ushered into the fullness of the call of God over them. If he's that way towards them, 
He's that way towards us. Some of you have been wrestling with this slight thought. Again, you're, you know you're forgiven, but you also have kind of sidelined yourself in the meanwhile. I want to tell you that that's not the grace of God. The grace of God cleanses, the grace of God heals, restores, delivers, and he empowers for us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's just talk to the Lord. For some of you, it was years ago. For some of you, it was last week. Where you got yourself into some kind of way. And the evil one is opposing you. He's opposing you by bringing charges to God as to why it is that you're no longer qualified. This is about the grace of God. If he's that way towards Jerusalem, he's that way towards you and me. Because there's no variation, there's no shadow of turning in him. It's who he is. The Lord gracious. He cleanses. He forgives the repentant heart. The heart that confesses her sin to the Lord. He's faithful to forgive. He's faithful to heal. Just talk to the Lord. Again, there's some of you in this room that that is what's going on with you. You're, you've sidelined yourself. You say, yeah, I know I'm forgiven. You're kind of going through life happy. But deep down inside, you think that what he has spoken to you about your calling and your assignment, that those days are over. That's not consistent with the counsel of God in Zechariah 3. Later on in Zechariah, he tells Zechariah that, uh, tells Joshua that he will have authority to stand in the very courts of God if he obeyed the Lord. And God's grace is available to empower and to enable our hearts to obey him. Release your grace, Lord. Grace, grace. Thank you for tuning in to Sunday Sermon. For more information, service times, and free teaching resources, visit forerunnerchurch.com.